Welcome to Hillhurst United Church, the podcast. We're really glad you're here. Whoever you are, wherever you're at, join us on the journey. Oops, there we go. No, I don't have this together. Let's try that again. I'm actually, it's been weird. I haven't had to wear a mask in a while, so here we go. Let me try to arrange this. I'll say it right off the bat. Um, I was president for the Student Association at Mount Royal University uh, for two years, two terms and it was all during the pandemic. So I've done a lot of public speaking, but not like this. It's usually been right into my webcam. So just bear with me if I need to take a few breaths or anything like that, because there's a lot of eyes on me, a lot of cameras right now looking at me. Um, okay, so hello, my name is Spirit River Striped Wolf. I'm from the beginning First Nation of the Blackfoot Confederacy, and I identify as Two-Spirit. And my pronouns are he, him, and they, them. And it's actually funny. This is actually my first time uh, being back here at the church in person since the pandemic. Um, I could have come earlier, but as I was saying, I was present for a while and I was wrapping up that term and that contract. Um, and it's actually quite surreal uh, to that the first day that I'm back at church is where I'm also giving a sermon. <laughs> so thank you uh, to Tony Snow for asking me to speak here today and of course for Hillhurst um, and for Andrea's guidance today. Thank you so much. Um, it's so great to be back here in the church, especially on this Sunday before Indigenous Peoples Day. <clears throat> I want to talk to you folks today about my story of colonization, uh, of decolonization, which is an ongoing process, and how decolonization actually led me back to the church, um, this church specifically. So for a majority of my life, I've been an advocate for Indigenous people, specifically advocating on supporting Indigenous students and entrepreneurs. Um, which is often a journey that Indigenous entrepreneurs and students go through, is often a, a journey, uh, an environment that has a ton of anti-Indigenous bias, especially um, in Alberta. Uh, and many of, those many of those biases are unconscious, and I do want to say that, but nonetheless, they do make Indigenous people's journeys uh, a lot more challenging, maybe even character building, if I'm being a little bit generous. Um, and especially for folks like me, if I'm being honest, um, who I would like to say that I've achieved a lot in my life, and I'm proud of that. Um, I came from a, fam a family of poverty and of pain. Um, as you heard in my introduction, I'm the second generation of not only the residential schools, um, but my father was in residential schools. He was uh, also in the 60s scoop, and my mom was in the day school, and all of my grandparents had attended residential school. Um, so I came from a family of a lot of poverty and pain. However, I was able to get myself into the city, get myself a few minimum wage jobs, um, and I had an auntie that took me in. Um, I probably wouldn't have been able to get where I am today if it weren't for my, my aunt and my cousin bringing me in, because getting a job or a home in, to rent in this city, uh, when your name is Spirit River Striped Wolf, um, is almost nearly impossible. Uh, the homes I've been able to secure were largely because of networks. Uh, and for jobs, I was just lucky. Uh, the first professional job that I got was as a student researcher, so it was a student researcher job, and it focused on indigenous trauma. And I thought, hey, I have that. I could probably do that. Um, <laughs> I was still new to my degree at the time, um, and as you heard, it's a degree in public policy or in policy studies at Monroe University. Um, I really got into this new job. I got to meet a ton of indigenous scholars, 
entrepreneurs in not only in this city but across Turtle Island. Um, I got to meet other entrepreneurs, artists, elders, knowledge keepers, uh, along with having taken my first in, uh, Indigenous Studies course as well. And with all of that, I was really awakened to the truths of Indigenous peoples, um, the history essentially, truly understanding my own history and my own identity. And so when people ask me, why do you go to church? Why are you still a Christian knowing that the church has done horrible things to Indigenous communities? Uh, these institutions that had a large hand in creating transgenerational trauma for Indigenous people, how can you continue to go to church? So, and this is when I was kind of in my younger, uh, earlier uh, 20s, I'm 28 right now, I'll be turning 29 this year. Um, but, and I would also say they wouldn't say that in that exact way, but that's what it sounded like to me after having learned all of these truths about Indigenous peoples. And so I would get nervous when I would hear questions like that, and as a Christian Indigenous person, you do get that question quite a bit. Um, and I don't get nervous because I feel I've been caught or outsmarted in some way. I get nervous because it's a question that really is, is really complex for me to answer, as I think it would be for many Indigenous people. Uh, and people who often ask that question, I find, are often people who are not uh, from the Indigenous community or are not, aren't from the reserve community. And I could really only speak from my experience uh, on the reserve. You see, different denominations of Christianity have swept through the reserves for a very long time since the start of colonization. Um, and during uh, the days of my parents and grandparents, it was the Catholic Church in the beginning First Nation. Uh, and one thing I learned, I think from Tony as well, was that in Sony Nakoda, it was the United Church. Uh, but for my reserve, it was uh, the Catholic Church. And of course, there was a few other um, church communities out there as well that were uh, going to reserve communities um, and so forth. But it also really depended on where you came from. Uh, but for me, when I was a kid in the 90s and 2000s, it was the Baptist church. It was the Baptist folks. Um, now, I didn't experience, uh, I would say, you know, physical abuse uh, that my parents or grandparents did in residential schools or in the day schools. Um, but it's still part of the story of my colonization because, as I'm sure you're all aware, there are some harmful churches out there that continue the assimilation and shaming of Indigenous peoples, of our queer and two-spirit members, and removing the voice of Indigenous women in our households and in our communities. My father was a strong Baptist and had a gift of communicating with others and with leading. Eventually, he took me and my family off the reserve and brought us to Three Hills, Alberta, where he attended Prairie Bible Institute and became a pastor. So yes, I was a pastor's kid and I was raised heavily in the church and traveled a lot with my parents as they went to different churches on and off reserves all across Alberta and Saskatchewan. So when I first started getting that question about, you know, how am I still Christian despite the truths of the church? I naturally thought uh, that my answer was simply that I was raised with it and that it was part of who I was, part of habit. Um, alongside being indigenous, uh, and yeah, and so one thing that I note here is that I also continue to practice my spirituality. One thing that my mom, who was a pastor's wife, also did something, tried to do with me and my sister as we were growing up was to try to teach us our language and to teach us about, uh, you know, the trickster Nopi, this supernatural figure in Blackfoot lore, 
um, and the creator and the source of life and all of these different kind of Blackfoot spiritual practices while we were going to church and not just on Sundays because that's not what you do when you're a pastor's kid. You go to church every day, you go to church on Wednesdays, you go to church on Fridays, it's all the time. Um, so when I was about 23-ish, I kind of felt that it wasn't a good enough justification to continue on this path. I was, I was raised to think that queer men and women were disgusting, shameful, and part of the damned. That when God came for, uh, from the sky on Judgment Day, our queer siblings would be forced to stay. How could I continue to believe something like that? Especially knowing at a very young age that I was very, very gay. <laughs> at the time, I was going uh, to uh, the Sunday sermons at my university, um, and I just kind of stopped going. So I kind of marked off Christianity and my identity uh, kind of list, I guess. I was very young and, you know, trying to figure yourselves out. Um, I almost had to do like a self-inventory of my identities. I kind of like had a list too. I was like, okay, what do I have here? I got indigenous and queer on my list. Maybe celiac, we'll get that checked out. Um, and now I'm also a student researcher at my university. Uh, and that's uh, kind of uh, all I had going for me in the first couple of uh, years at university. Let's see, one second. So, let's see. Uh, but it got me where I needed to go. Uh, so I guess it worked out, even though I didn't really have my whole, myself figured out. I had these kind of identities laying around. It's like, okay, this is who I am. This is what I'll, who I'll be going throughout life. And being a researcher really allowed me to dive deep into really challenging topics for Indigenous people about addiction, trauma, and also about uh, story and stories of resilience. Um, in the research, I learned the way parents discipline their children in early childhood and how that can have impactful consequences on how their children connect with others once they've become adults. Um, Using shaming language and messaging that, according to researchers Tagney and Deering, express disgust, tease, communicate conditional approval, and the use of love withdrawal techniques. So, you know, I'll love you more if you do this tour for me. And those are really the perfect ingredients for developing children who constantly question their own worthiness and that really damages their ability to connect with others when they get older, which is absolutely necessary to create things like cooperative businesses or just to work on group projects and uh, to have communicative families um, because you need that intuitive ability to connect with others. And so these shaming messages and shaming languages actually have a lot to do with our resilience in that kind of regard, regardless of who you are as a person which I thought was really fascinating as they continued to do this research. And really, if you think about it, using shaming language and messaging is really the, M, the whole MO of the residential school, of the day schools, of uh, the 60 scoop, and of so many other damaging indigenous policies from the Indian Act. The other thing I learned from the elders and knowledge keepers that I had the honor of interviewing and speaking with was that many indigenous languages were actually structured originally in a way where it was not really possible to use shaming language in indigenous languages. 
there was really no way in Blackfoot and from Stony, as I've learned from Stony elders as well, that there was no way to say you are a bad boy or you're a bad girl to your child. It's almost nonsensical or not possible in the language. Discipline always focused on calling out the problematic behavior rather than the individual themselves. It's the idea that individuals can't be bad, only actions can be bad. Um, and if you're a fan of Brene Brown, uh, then you'll know that that's a very important distinction. And there's researchers like Brene Brown that have been studying shame and guilt for um, over 100 years now. What was once not part of my culture was introduced as part of the assimilation process. In 2019, the National Inquiry into Missing Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls outlined how, quote, colonial structures in the form of the Indian Act, the 60 Scoop, residential schools, and breaches of human and indigenous rights have led directly to the current increased rates of violence, death, and suicide in indigenous populations, end quote. My research paper focused on how our own practices of disciplining our children, practice that, practices that would often instill resilience and the willingness to uh, change and adapt, were replaced by the more shaming language introduced by the church. And as I was talking to my partner, Dawson, it's kind of like, if you think of it as a timeline, like there's all of these years of healthy family dynamics and connection to community and resiliency. And, you need to have that, especially in the harsh uh, environment that is Canada before colonization. And then right in that timeline, you're kind of cutting it off in the middle, and you're seeing a lot of these issues that are coming out of indigenous communities now. And that was really important for me to see that, you know, there was a before, right? There was something that happened before all of this. So obviously it was colonization. What helped, what led to that, um, to a lot of the, you know, issues that do exist in a lot of indigenous communities. Um, so I was uh, given an opportunity uh, by my university to submit my paper in the 2018 International Social Innovation Research Conference in Heidelberg, Germany. It's one of the few things, along with being president, it's one of the other things I like to brag about. Otherwise, you know, I try to remember what my parents taught me about modesty. Um, and it won best paper in the stream. Um, and I was really, really proud of that. I have, and I have my full research paper on my website at stripedwolf.ca uh, for free. However, you can still tell um, that this paper was life-changing for me. Um, my spirituality before the research was very much like a toxic, emotionally abusive relationship. The cognitive dissonance and emotional trauma I experienced while, you know, on one hand being queer and then being part of that particular Christian community at the time was just too much uh, after of what I've learned from university and what university showed me. And in a lot of ways, what university showed me was a way out of this abusive relationship. Or at least a way of pausing and for the first time in my life, begin to think for myself. I was catching myself becoming an adult. And I felt like I could maybe even add adult to my list of identities next to, you know, very, very gay. Um, <laughs> the journey um, had taught me a lot, not only about my own uh, history, but also about the state of my community. 
of my family and of myself. I do workshops for organizations in my uh, research paper, and if you or your organization are interested, you can, again, learn more about that workshop on my website. But I've done that presentation with a lot of indigenous people, uh, and mostly indigenous students at my university, and I haven't had anyone disagree with my analysis, um, only add to it. And so I feel confident saying that indigenous people have a very hard time with human connection. And that is a clear, traceable, transgenerational, psychological wound inflicted upon us by colonial structures like the residential school system. Understanding this meant that I could kind of sit back and take a breath of relief, um, a sigh of relief, that indigenous people are not, you know, um, broken or uh, mysterious or strange compared to the rest of Canadians. We're not inferior or lack competence. We are living proof of the vital importance of culture, as we've seen today, of eating together, sharing together, of sharing and activities together, of acceptance, inclusion, and of fellowship. Well, I soon realized that that was my biggest reason for the question of why I continue to call myself a Christian. The reasons why church is so important to us is because of fellowship and because of the spiritual nurturing that we receive. And these are absolutely life-saving for people. And especially, I think, for my generation and other younger generations, whether you're Indigenous or non-Indigenous, uh, especially you know, being exposed to social media, I think those are the things that we need the most in our lives. And it's unfortunate that we don't see a lot of, you know, folks around my age that, you know, know of Hillhurst. Um, and I think also spiritual nurturing and relationship, friendship and fellowship is also suicide and harm reduction and prevention. And that's how church, I think, needs to start looking at things. Okay, so kind of going back to my story, it's uh, 2018, I hear of Hillhurst United Church, a church that attended Calgary Pride and honors indigenous spirituality and culture. And so I became part of this community and never looked back. The messages I received here have saved me in many ways, but one thing it, um, it saved me, one thing that it saved for me was my relationship with spirituality and with the Creator. And isn't that funny for me to say that a church, once a policy instrument used for cultural destruction of indigenous people, of my people, would one day help me see that I didn't have to sacrifice my indigeneity in order to celebrate the wisdom and sacrifice of Christ. That my spirituality is not compromised, but actually enhanced by coming here and by going to Blackfoot ceremonies as well. I believe that connection is such a key component to what God is. God created us to thrive in connection with others, and we know this because we are literally hardwired to be that way. This is why I think it's so sad that this powerful, powerful gift from God was taken from Indigenous people, and that we continue to struggle in finding our ways back to each other as Indigenous people. But by knowing this, by knowing the truth the truth and part of truth and reconciliation, I think Hillhurst has shown that decolonization in the church 
can be possible by actively taking accountability through their land acknowledgements, um, honoring indigenous culture and history as, as we have been at this church for a couple weeks now, and having people like me come and talk. The legacies of residential schools are based in assimilation and cultural genocide. But a huge legacy of this church was founded on congregants standing up for the values that we have here today. Things like radical hospitality, spirituality, social justice, and risk. And you're all part of that history and have played a part in sustaining that legacy of this church, that whoever you are, wherever you're at, you're not only tolerated here, but you're celebrated in this community. And that's how we decolonize. So, amen. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to Hillhurst United Church, the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode and are thinking about someone who might enjoy it too, we invite you to send it their way and help the podcast grow. We're really glad you're here and we'd love to know what you thought about today's sermon. Leave us a review in iTunes or send us an email at communications at hillhurstunited.com. We'd love to hear from you.